Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, or the institutions of any of our guests or hosts. Today, in honor of the 2020 ASES annual meeting, we've picked three papers presented at the annual meeting. For each, we'll interview the presenting author and discuss the study's findings and the importance of the study. I hope you to enjoy these interviews and they enhance your annual meeting experience. Um, we are here with Dr. Matt Ramsey from the Rothman Institute in Philadelphia. Dr. Ramsey, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you, Peter? I'm doing great. We're here to discuss Dr. Ramsey's project entitled, Does Early Repair Improve Outcomes in Traumatic Rotator Cuff Tears? Dr. Ramsey, can you give us a two-minute summary of your project? Yeah, I, I can tell you first what motivated it and then kind of how we went about um, collecting the data and, and um, formulating uh, uh, the, the design and ultimately the execution. But, you know, what we're seeing in our market, and I'm sure others uh, in other markets are uh, seeing the same sorts of things, is especially for non-traumatic rotator cuff tears, there's a lot of scrutiny um, with regard to um, non-operative treatment. A lot of this is based off of Jed Kuhn's data with the Moon Group. And we're being required in, in a lot of circumstances to manage a lot of patients non-operatively for weeks before we even consider anything surgically. And some of that was actually bleeding over into the traumatic rotator cuff patient population. And I think some of the reason for that is that there isn't a, a lot of data um, that really directs us as physicians on the appropriateness of early versus delayed surgery, meaning early without any um, non-operative treatment versus delayed where you probably don't affect uh, and may actually avoid surgery. So you don't affect the final results of surgery as delayed and uh, you may actually even be able to avoid surgery altogether with appropriate treatment. And so the idea kind of grew out of this need to provide third-party uh, reviewers some data that we could kind of point to and say, look, there is a fundamental difference between acute traumatic injuries uh, acute traumatic rotator cuff tears and uh, the more attritional kind of uh, chronic uh, type rotator cuff tears. And uh, so that was kind of the impetus for the study. Uh, we're fortunate, obviously, at the Rothman Institute that we have a fairly large uh, group of surgeons. So we have in our Philadelphia region, nine shoulder and elbow surgeons who provide a very rich um, kind of database of information. So we were able to kind of mine that database uh, and really use that to kind of fuel the study, essentially. So that was kind of how it started. And then, you know, we put the research team together and started digging in and seeing what we had. And tell us what you found. Well, so there were, there were some very obvious things. Um, that and you know we we determined uh, through some analysis that um, the optimal time for rotator cuff surgery in an acute setting is less than four months. Um, if you look at the data for patients who uh, have surgery within that four month time frame, on average, uh, they did significantly better than the ones who had surgery after that. So um, their results uh, were were better across the board for all of the parameters, all of our functional outcomes, the ASCS score, SST score, SANE score, and VAS pain scores. Everybody interested, you know, the, the, the take home is that everybody improves. So all of our patients with the exception of the patients who were treated after a six to 12 month delay, all of the patients improved uh, significantly in all of the parameters. All of them uh, exceeded the MCID uh, for rotator cuff repairs uh, with the exception of the six to 12 month group um, who did not exceed the MCID for the SST score, but everybody else did. So the general take home is that 
the surgical management of traumatic rotator cuff tears will improve patients functionally uh, and will improve their pain. But if you get to them earlier, uh, they tend to do better. And, and I mean, that makes sense, right? We all kind of know that if patients come in with profound functional loss and pain after a traumatic injury, that those are tears that we all feel strongly about. And if you look at our data closely, um, the patients that uh, had surgery early, so we broke our patients down into zero to two months, uh, two uh, to four months, four to six months, and then six to 12 months. So the patients that had their surgery early, so the group one patients zero to two months and the group two patients had significantly larger rotator cuff tears and worse preoperative functional scores. And that probably represents two things or several things maybe, not just two. It, it represents that, you know, patients who have an injury and have very profound functional loss or profound pain, they don't stick around and wait to come in. They don't go to their primary care doctor or when they go to their primary, they're so profoundly affected that they are referred early to us. Um, and because of their profound functional loss, um, those patients are moved to, by us to the operating room quicker. Uh, so somebody might have a traumatic two tendon tear with functional weakness, as opposed to somebody who may have a single tendon tear, has pain, but doesn't really have any functional weakness. And, and those patients we tended uh, to be a little more conservative which, with, which I think really speaks to maybe a, a potential bias in uh, patient selection for the study, but I think it's a bias that exists in all of our practices that, you know, I'm much more willing uh, to treat somebody uh, with therapy injections, modified activities, if they have a small uh, rotator cuff tear that isn't functionally impairing them, as opposed to somebody who has a two tendon tear that is, uh, you know, is, the resu is resulting in weakness. Certainly. I, I noticed the same thing reading through your abstract. It's, it's, I think it's hard in a retrospective study like this because the patients aren't allocated prospectively to one group or the other. Certainly, we're quicker to operate on some patients for other reasons, too, like demographics, insurance status. Did you look at those kind of things between the groups? Was there a difference in those things between groups? Well, we looked at workers' compensation claims, but we didn't look at uh, like patient demographics in terms of whether they were... Um, you know, commercial payers versus Medicare, uh, uninsured versus insured. We didn't dig into that too deeply, you know. And when we and when we look at, you know, one of the, one of the things that you know, any a, a lot of times in our practice, our retrospective work is almost like fact finding for a you know later prospective type study. And you know, as we've started to think about how we might design a prospective randomized study in this, it becomes a really hard thing. I mean, does anybody, I'm not sure we're going to ever really be able to put together a well-designed prospective study. I'm not sure anybody would be comfortable randomizing somebody to non-operative treatment who has a large traumatic two-tendon tear resulting in weakness. I mean, I think that, you know, it's almost like, you know, I remember when I was a resident, we were talking about, you know, are you ever going to be able to prospectively prove that total hip or total knee arthroplasty is better than non-operative treatment? Like there's no study that defines that. We know it intuitively um, and we're criticized at times from external sources because we don't have that data prospectively in a well-designed study. But to then go back and say, okay, I'm going to go back and do that study, I think they become very hard to do just because it becomes almost ethically very difficult to randomize certain patients because of our level, you know, four and five evidence that lets us know that these people should be treated uh, surgically, or at least that's our, that's our sense. Yes, certainly. I think in this instance, just as the instances you mentioned with arthroplasty, we, we as a field have lost equipoise. I mean, we no longer believe, we no longer can look patients in the face and tell them that we believe both treatments could could be equivalent. Um, and certainly right. I think that's reflected in your in your data here. I mean, I think if you look at the retear rates between groups two and four, they rise sequentially. If you look at the ASC, the change in the ASCS scores, they drop sequentially as you let longer and longer from surgery. So while I agree that it's hard with retrospective data, or I mentioned that it's hard with retrospective data, certainly the data is compelling. Tell us, well, is this going to change your practice? 
Well, I'm not. Uh, I mean, I, I probably not dramatically. I think what it does for me, um, you know, I t you know, if so if somebody present presents to my office with a traumatic injury, and we were very careful in defining traumatic injury. You know, we all know that there are patients who come in with years of shoulder pain, they kind of stumble and kind of just kind of grab onto a light pole and then they have an acute injury. We kind of eliminated all of those. These are patients uh, that we carefully screened who had no uh, prodromal symptoms in their shoulder and had a truly well-defined traumatic injury. So, and I'm not, we're not naive enough to think for, by any stretch that these patients don't have pre-existing cuff disease. The mean age was 60. So we all know that if we, you know, just look at the natural history of cuff disease, that these patients, obviously, many of them, if not all of them, will have cuff disease. So the ones that come in that are large, you know, two tendon tears with weakness, I've always been very aggressive with those. The, the ones that I might be more aggressive with, where, where it will really change um, my practice is the smaller tears that I might have historically or previously kind of said, well, why don't we go try a little bit of therapy? We'll try an injection and we'll see how you do. I mean, I think those that's going to change considerably. You know, we, we, are, we all know now that, and there's a lot of emerging data on the deleterious effects of corticosteroid injections. So it's not like you know, our average time for these patients to get into our office after injury was six to seven weeks. So if you pile an injection on top of that, now we've already extended beyond this four-month kind of threshold that, we, that we've now defined. So for those patients where, you know, where we're dealing predominantly with a painful shoulder without a lot of functional loss, that will definitely change in my practice. In somebody who has a true traumatic injury, that will change. Yeah, I, that's exactly what I thought when I looked at this data is I thought the the patient with a small traumatic tear, maybe we should be more aggressive with that patient. And I, I feel like this data would support that. What do you think yeah. mediates this effect? Do you think this is a tear retraction effect, an atrophy effect? Is it because there's reduced biologic capacity for healing when you operate 12 months later? Yeah, I, I, I think probably more the latter than the former. I mean, we again, we were careful in our selection. These were patients who had Goutelier zero, one, and two at, uh, fatty atrophy. So we didn't have anybody who had longstanding profound atrophy. And if you look at our average um, um, index, uh, the Goutelier uh, fatty infiltration index, it was 0.8. So these are people who really didn't have any significant um, fatty degeneration or fatty atrophy of their cuff. So while I certainly think that you know, the longer you take, you know, if we're saying we're going to, the ones you really worry about progressing, at least for me, are the patients who have much larger rotator cuff tears, and I'm tending to do those early anyway. So I'm not as concerned, you know, a single tendon tear that you sit on for a while, I'm not at maybe as concerned about that as I would be a larger tear. But I do think that you, you, you miss your window, your, your acute biologic response window um, over that time period. And I don't know what it is. You know, I don't know, you know, to me, I, you know, I've always told patients that three months to me is kind of a better window. Maybe for me, I feel better about three months, you know, our data, we didn't specifically look at three months. We did look at, um, um, we tried to replicate Bob Cofield's uh, we looked at his time frame of three weeks in a subgroup analysis, and they did much better, actually. But we didn't have enough um, that we felt that we could really put that out. Or statistically, we couldn't really demonstrate uh, that it was um, meaningfully different. So we kind of held off on recommending three weeks. And quite honestly, I don't know what that offers us. I mean, three weeks is a pretty hard threshold for any of us to meet. You know, I don't know about you, but getting patients into my clinic, getting them scheduled for surgery within three weeks is a pretty tight window. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I think that, that that my hope is reading this, looking through this data, maybe you could give us an answer to that question. Because I get that question all the time in clinic that I think you probably get where the patient says, Doc, how long can I wait before I need to have this fixed? How urgent is it? So based on your data, do you do you do you still say three months is the ideal window? Do you think you could look uh, at this and say four months is maybe a reasonable number? 
Yeah, I say four months is a reasonable number. I think it, it gives, I mean, some of this too, I mean, this is, you know, the equivalent kind of thought process for me is how patients deal with traumatic injuries like fractures. I mean, you know, when you have somebody who is normal one moment, they have an event and then things are dramatically different, whether it's, you know, fractures or in this case, a traumatic cuff tear where previously or prior to whatever event they sustained, they had no problems they have to there's a psychological component of them coming to terms with what they've got so so i think four months for me gives them a chance to kind of see you for you to talk to them you know i do think data helps uh quite a bit so you know this is one of those situations where i think it will help uh, it certainly helped us. You know, I've I've known this data now for about six months, or we've been compiling it. So I've been seeing this kind of evolve over the last six months, and it, it's really helpful to be able to point patients to the literature and say, "Look, this is what our data suggests." You know, and it strengthens the data that we already have. I mean, there there are several studies in the literature that look at this, but they were smaller studies. They had shorter follow up. You know, they had incomplete kind of um, functional outcomes. So, you know, what what we really are trying to do, and I think what we did was strengthen kind of the data that already exists, and maybe focus that time frame a, a little more clearly. One of the questions I wanted to ask you that I think is Maybe a, a, a side question for this kind of study is you were clear in this study to find these as all traumatic tears. And I understand yeah. that's really important to answer this research question so we can time the tear or time the date of injury. Do you, you know, we have this discussion often in our department, do traumatic tears have a better prognosis for healing than degenerative tears? Like if the patient can identify an event, is that a good prognostic indicator or is that neither here nor there? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it matters. Um, you know, I and you know, I, I think that biologically, I, I and I always this is the anecdote that I always use for patients, and I believe it to be true is that if you have no pre existing rotator cuff disease, you have a complete evol- traumatic avulsion of your rotator cuff, all of them, all four. If I fix your shoulder quickly that the likelihood that you will heal that is better than if you sit on that. And I think it's for the reasons that we talked about earlier. I think one is that particularly when you get them in that acute inflammatory response, you know, their body is revved up. You know, when, when we, when we operate on chronic attritional rotator cuff tears, essentially what we're trying to do when we kind of clear the tuberosity and debris the edge of the cuff tears, you're trying to kind of reignite the body's healing mechanism. You're trying to fool it into thinking that it's been acutely injured and that I should go ahead and try to heal this. At least that's the way I think about it. Well, in a traumatic injury, Mother Nature has done that for you. And, you know, we try all kinds of things. You know, we've talked about how much much do you need to denude the tuberosity? Is it just a little surface preparation okay, or do you need a groove? Well, we, you know, Pat St. Pierre kind of dealt with that back many years ago. And, you know, do we a single, you know, there are a million ways you can look at how we try to kind of promote healing. But I don't think there's anything better than Mother Nature who's already trying to do that. So I think there is a fundamental difference. And then I think you avoid the chronic things that make our lives difficult, one, acutely with repair. So retractions, you know, scarring of your rotator cuff, the the difficulty or challenge in mobilizing uh, a retracted rotator cuff, and then the structural changes that come over time that we know profoundly influence outcome, fatty atrophy, of the cuff superior, you know, the mechanical changes of the shoulder, superior migration of the humeral head, all of those things. Um, you know, if you can avoid those, I think you're in far better shape. Yeah. I, think I don't know if that, an- did, really did that answer did your it. question. <laughs> no, it does. It does. Cause I don't, and I, I think it's, we've gone round and round about that exact question in my department. We did a, a gene expression study that showed that tears that heal, this hasn't been published yet, but tears that heal, had substantially different gene expression towards kind of more an acute pro-inflammatory phase than than tears that didn't, that had these more fibrotic phases. And there were differences in degenerative versus acute. 
But I, when I look in the literature to find, find evidence for that, I struggle. I mean, there's a study that um, George Morrell did that kind of showed no difference. And I wonder if it's, if it's just a, dif a difficulty in defining what the traumatic tear is. That if, you know, that maybe all tears are degenerative to some degree and traumatic to some degree, and it's just hard to find the balance of what's what. So I commend you guys for what you did here, because it's, as you mentioned, that it's difficult to sometimes to determine which is which and when, when, the, when the injury really occurs. Well, and I think, you, you know, what you try to do is factor in all of those things that speak to chronicity. So, you know, you know I don't think retraction is a good proxy for uh, chronicity of a tear. You know, Bob Tajan has looked at, you know, the retraction of the muscle tendon junction retraction and the fact that you can have acute rotator cuff tears where the cuff is retracted. And those are, you know, very fixable rotator cuff tears if you get to you know, mm -hmm. retraction is not a, necessarily a proxy for chronicity of or acuity of your rotator cuff tear. Fatty atrophy is. Mm -hmm. and so we were very careful mm -hmm. to control for that by, you know, excluding patients who had more profound fatty atrophy. And you could maybe make the argument that our threshold of, a, uh, of an index of less than two on average uh, in the muscles that we kind of evaluated might have been high too but our turns out that our our our, uh, our global index was 0.8 or 0.9 so so clearly these are patients that don't have any chronic attritional cuff changes or at least limited attritional cuff changes and i think that's an important thing i mean i think that you know one of the things i think a, you know a true traumatic road i mean we, we looked at you know, in our practice over the three and a half years that we included patients in this study had something like 2,000 rotator cuffs done and only 200 of them really qualified for the study. So this is a small subset of the patients we see. And we all, you know, know that we see many more of these chronic or acute on chronic injuries, not truly acute traumatic injuries. So, you know, I think that, I think it matters. And I think we need to be a little kind of clearer maybe in the way we kind of describe this um, when we report it. Well, I think this is a great, um, great effort. I'm sure there was a huge amount of work to pull all this data together, um, even if you have a registry. So congratulations to, to you and your team at the Rothman Institute. Um, and thank you for coming on the podcast and explaining your findings. This has been, I'm sure will be valuable to our uh, listeners. Great. You know, thanks for having me, Peter. I appreciate it. We are here with Dr. Benjamin Ma from the University of California in San Francisco. Dr. Ma, how are you? Good. How are you doing yet? I'm doing great. We're here to discuss Dr. Ma's project entitled The Effect of Non-Steroidal Anti-Inflammatory Medications After Rotator Cuff Surgery, a Randomized Double-Blinded Placebo-Controlled Trial. Dr. Ma, can you give us a two-minute summary of this project? Great. Sure. We did a study because um, there have been reports about the negative effects of uh, non-steroidal on soft tissue healing. Uh, mostly these are animal studies uh, looking at the effect of um, anti-inflammatory medication and how the tendon healing uh, has been affected. But there's no real clinical um, data out there in terms of support this or actually refute this over here. Um, so we actually came up with a, a project to um, do a randomized control study to look at um, regular, you know, post-op um, treatment in terms of pain management versus uh, one with uh, uh, non-steroidal and follow this patient up to a year to see what the outcomes are. Look at pain relief within the first two weeks uh, and also look at the um, surgical outcome and also healing integrity at one year after surgery. And what did you find? We found that, you know, obviously uh, this is a randomized control study. Uh, one is actually with um, standard uh, post-op um, protocol uh, with uh, narcotics, uh, and the other one's actually with the addition of anti-inflammatory. It's within the first um, a week after surgery, the anti-inflammatory group do have lower um, need of narcotics, uh, a lower uh, opioid uh, equivalent that needs to be taken, which is understandably with the multimodal uh, pain management. Uh, and one year after surgery, the surgical uh, outcomes are very similar in terms of patient reported outcome. The uh, DASH score and ASCS scores are no differences. Uh, range of motion also, also no differences. Um, in terms of failure rate, um, we also didn't find any statistical differences between the two groups. 
there is a slightly lower number of um, uh, food in the stairs uh, in the uh, anti-inflammatory group compared with the control group, uh, but overall there's not statistically significant in terms of outcomes yet. Dr. Ma, I think this is a really great study. I mean, it really highlights how effective NSAIDs are for pain control post-rotator cuff repair. Tell us how you selected ibuprofen, and also, maybe if you don't mind, tell us your current pain control protocol after a cuff repair. Yeah, great, good question over there. So we chose to use ibuprofen because that's the most common, you know, anti-inflammatory being used uh, and also, you know, um, have probably less, you know, other side effects. Um, and um, we chose like 400 milligrams three times a day uh, for the first two weeks after the operation as a dose we used. Um, there are studies out there, and actually um, uh, a study um, uh, performed in Korea, uh, ONO actually used um, Cetacopsa, which is COX-2 uh, versus Tramadol uh, and versus um, uh, a, a COX-1 inhibitor. And they found that a COX-2 does seem to have higher failure rate. Uh, which may be consistent with some of the basic science studies uh, that was done uh, on animals. Um, so I think that the message is that I think uh, co uh, COX-1 inhibitor, which ibuprofen compared with um, control, does seem to be um, not you know, um, deleterious in terms of you know, affecting tendon healing, maybe some lower failure rate also. But COX-2, which is shown in another study, may be something that's actually negative in terms of outcomes out there, yeah. So it sounds like um, that was your reason for selecting ibuprofen. What and what are you using right now? What NSAID do you use as part of your practice? Um, we still use ibuprofen uh, as our post-op um, uh, multimodal medication. We do use um, a usually a, um, a coding uh, derivative, um, uh, hydrocodone with a tonal combination uh, as an adjunct for the first you know two three days. Yeah. And are you adding in a, a Lyrica or a Gabapentin or a nerve medication or no? Yeah, great question. We haven't done it for the outpatient um, arthroscopic rotator repair group. Uh, we haven't found that to be uh, as um, severe in terms of pain. We have used uh, um, Gabapentin uh, mostly for our um, shoulder replacement patients. That seems to be able to decrease the inpatient and also outpatient the car use. Uh, so that has been you know, helpful with that, yeah. Dr. I think the healing data you present in this study are really helpful um, because that's been a major concern with these medications based on the animal data you cited. I, one of the questions I had for you, I noticed your study is powered for VAS square, scores and not necessarily for healing data. I can, if I were doing the study, I'd do the same thing because it's so hard to power for healing. Have you guys done any kind of post hoc analyses? How many, how well powered do you think you are for retear? How many patients would you need to be adequately powered there? Um, have you done any, anything on the back end there? Yeah, great question over there. And this is kind of how we set up with uh, this design uh, for the study. This is 101 patients we randomized in two groups. Uh, we powered it for the VA score within the first two weeks after surgery. To look at healing um, rate, um, the failure rate for both groups are, we talk about in the you know, one that's actually about um, 14%, the other one's about maybe 30% over there. It will need to be a much bigger group. Um, so we talk about you know, hundreds and, you know, and hundreds of patients. Now, this is actually a first attempt for us to look at the effect. Uh, we obviously found you know, some you know, um, uh, findings that are not as, um, as deleterious as some of the basic science. To really further study this, this would probably involve a multi-center trial. And this is something we have a discussion in terms of whether that's something we need to carry out to really look at you know, a healing rate. Uh, but that you're absolutely right that the study is not powered to look at differences in terms of healing. There may be some differences uh, when you look at the numbers, but not statistically significant. But um, the number may be almost like, you know, four to five times higher uh, before we need to show differences. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And I just want to clarify the listeners, just in case you didn't catch this, the retail rate is higher with placebo than it was with NSAIDs. I mean, so your study almost suggests that NSAIDs are protected. Now, do you think that's maybe statistical variation? Do you think that's mediated by the higher narcotic use, which may impair cuff healing? Tell us where you, if you think that is important or not. Yeah, I think first thing I would say, this is study is not power to actually found, you know, a to look at healing rate at the differences over there. So the foundings are not statistically different. When you look at the numbers itself, there is a higher failure rate on the placebo group versus, you know, uh, versus ibuprofen. When you look at another study, which is the old study in Korea, when you look at the three types of anti-inflammatory, 
I'll say the rate for COX-1, which is ibuprofen versus their, you know, a, you know, a, a study, which is ibuprofen and tramadol are very similar uh, in the, you know, 8 to 10% you know, failure rate. So COX-2, which is celecoxib, I have about almost like a 30% you know, failure rate, which may be very similar to placebo than what we found. So, um, so I think the message may be COX-1 may not be detrimental at all. Uh, is it better? I think a bigger study needs to be done to kind of confirm that. Now, I'm sure you reviewed a lot on the different kind of, um, you know, like uh, NSAIDs, COX-1, COX-2. Do you think these findings would also apply to someone who's using naproxen or someone who's using Aleve or someone who's using Depro or whatever other, you know, Toradol, whatever other NSAID you're using? Or do you think that there may be something specific about ibuprofen or maybe it's too early to tell? Yeah, I think that's too early to tell. Obviously, this is you know a bit more complicated once you actually add different type of um, uh, mixture of anti-inflammatories in there. Uh, but you know, I think that also warrants more investigation because this is something that's over the counter. People commonly use it, um, and to be you know you know very you know honest with patients, I tell them ibuprofen initially when we came out is not really for you know for surgical healing, really for like you know when you sprain your ankle, you sprain your knee. Um, that's just something that decreases inflammation. Then it become a multimodal pain medication for post-operative healing, especially for reconstruction or repairs. And those, you know, may actually have negative effects. We certainly know the effect of anti-inflammatory bone healing right now for spinal fusion or, you know, non-unions. That's something that's been shown to be negative in terms of healing potential. Uh, but for soft tissue, like, you know, a tendons uh, hasn't been really clearly uh, demonstrated. But in this case, seem to be cox for the ibuprofen may not be as uh, detrimental, which is good to know, yeah. Now, Dr. Ma, a study like this is a major effort. Tell us a little bit about your team and the approach and how you got this done. Yeah, this is really a, a brainstorm of one of my residents, you know, when she came to the service and kind of asked about this uh, um, uh, uh, effect of anti-inflammatory. We reviewed the paper, which actually looked at the basic science studies and asked about why we're not doing a clinical study to verify it. So really stem from a resident kind of driving this, uh, and then we actually have the infrastructure that allow it to continue. Uh, she's actually since you know finished her residency, finished her fellowship, become faculty with us right now, Jennifer. Uh, so we're very proud of what she's done. Um, but we do have a, a big team that allows it to happen with you know a, a research coordinators and primary care the people who actually do the ultrasound evaluation. Um, so it's a great learning process for us. Uh, because it's a randomized control trial, the patients are blinded in terms of what medication they got. Same with the uh, same with the um, providers. Um, the pharmacies involved in terms of making these medications make sure they look exactly alike, uh, the ibuprofen and the and the placebo. Um, so it's kind of a great learning experience for us as orthopedic surgeons. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's such a such a heartwarming story. You know, a lot of our listeners are are residents or students and. Um, I love the story about a resident coming to you and saying, why can't we do this? And you saying, let's get it done. And then years later, when she be, joins the faculty, the, the study's fin finally in publication. Um, so certainly congratulations to your team and congratulations to, to Jennifer uh, for completing this and joining the faculty. And um, Anything else you'd like to add or other, other take-homes from the study? Um, no, I think you kind of went through most of it over there. I think, you know, the last message is probably very, very, you know, good to kind of make sure that the audience and the people here is that it really comes with an idea, but idea you need to have, you know, operation over there. Once you have the idea, make sure you kind of go in with it over there, make sure you drive the process through and you get a result. I think you can answer your question over there. Uh, and it doesn't, you know, need to be the most world famous shoulder surgeon to come up with ideas, even from a student, a trainee, uh, and have the right infrastructure, then you have the question answered. We actually feel pretty excited about this. We obviously want to take it to the next level and maybe do like a bigger study to look at healing, you know, rate also. Uh, but this is something that, you know, uh, it always starts with a, a small idea and becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. So this is something I think is, is great message that people should have, yeah. Well, congratulations again on the study and um, thanks for coming on the podcast to discuss it with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Peter. Really appreciate your time, you know, and thanks for being, being interested in our study. We are with Dr. Sean Driscoll for the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Dr. Driscoll, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. We are here to discuss Dr. Driscoll's project entitled Prospective Randomized Trial of Continuous Passive Motion versus Physical Therapy After Arthroscopic Release of Elbow Contracture. Dr. Driscoll, can you give us a two-minute summary of your project? 
Sure. Um, this is a randomized controlled trial in which we compared the use of CPM or continuous passive motion to traditional physical therapy following the surgical treatment of an elbow contracture carried out arthroscopically. And it was uh, conducted uh, in a three surgeon practice, although all the surgeries were done by one surgeon um, in a very controlled way over the course of uh, approximately two years. Tell us a little bit about the intervention. Who, who makes the machine? What are the settings you use on it? How often do patients use it? Yeah, the CPM protocol is a standard protocol that I, I have used and my partners have been using as well uh, for uh, about 30 years now. The machine is actually quite an old machine. I don't know if the specific machine matters, but the one that we used is called a Kinetech machine. It's a very simple mechanical machine with no software at all. Uh, it sits by the side of the bed or the side of a chair, um, and the patient controls it with a button that is used to reverse uh, the direction of motion. And they have a little knob that they control the speed of motion with as well. And so the patient um, goes into the CPM machine on the day of surgery after receiving an indwelling catheter for brachial plexus uh, analgesia. And that uh, catheter stays in place for 48 hours while they use this machine in hospital. Um, it, this was an in-hospital use of CPM for this particular study for a number of reasons, although it does not have to be done in hospital necessarily. And um, they use the machine continuously for uh, approximately 55 minutes out of each hour, roughly speaking, while um, uh, in, with the brachial plexus block in place. And then once they go home on the third day, they wean from the machine increasingly being out of it longer and longer, as long as they can tolerate without having lost motion or without having difficulty when they go back in, uh, achieving the same motion that they had just had. And most patients um, take on average somewhere in the range of three to four weeks to wean completely from the machine. The physical therapy group started physical therapy uh, the day after surgery, and they also stayed in Rochester for three days and had supervised physical therapy for an hour each day uh, with um, our physical therapists here, a team of four of the same therapists with a very uh, consistent modality of physical therapy, including end range stretching, edema control, and extension splinting. And then of course they went home on the third day as well. And um, then they were um, uh, treated by a physical therapist locally, uh, typically a minimum of an hour a day for three times a week and did their home therapy on their own as well. And um, what, what did you find? I mean, you mentioned you randomized two or to the machine or not to the machine. Which, what were the differences between the groups and in your final follow-up? Right. Well, um, we had a number of parameters. Obviously, the most um, you know, salient one was their final range of motion. But there were very important other parameters, too, which included how quickly they recovered from the surgery uh, as measured by their capacity to get back to a number of different uh, objectives that they established preoperatively from a list, for example, getting back to work uh, or being able to uh, take care of themselves with their ADLs uh, or getting back to sport in some cases it was. Um, and then in addition, uh, we measured a number of uh, patient-derived uh, outcome parameters. But in essence, uh, at one year, uh, we found that motion was greater in the group uh, that underwent CPM than it was um, in the group that was treated by physical therapy. And, and that motion was greater at each time point, which was measured at three weeks, six weeks, I'm sorry, three days, six weeks, three months, and one year. So the difference was greater, but they also achieved their motion uh, more quickly and they achieved their uh, functional outcomes more quickly as well. The difference in the final range of motion depended on the uh, loss of motion that the patient had going into the surgery. And so if, for example, a patient only lacked, say, 40 degrees in their arc of motion, well, their, their gain would not be as much as the gain was if they had lacked, say, at 100 degrees of motion preoperatively. And, and the difference in the benefit of CPM was indeed related to how severe the loss of motion pre-op. Um, the overall percentage of lost motion gained 
averaged um, approximately half of the motion that was lost. And the difference between CPM and the PT group was approximately 15 percentage points. So if, um, if a given range of motion loss was recovered at say 50% with CPM, then it was recovered at approximately 35% with physical therapy. So it sounds like the intervention group, the CPM group definitely did better. Did you have any downsides in this study? Were there any, 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 any adverse effects you could attribute to the CPM? Could you talk a little bit maybe about the cost to the patient? Right, right. Well, we, we did not identify any adverse effects of the CPM itself in this particular study. Um, uh, we did survey the patients going into the study and at the end of the study as to which treatment group they had a preference for, if any. And um, of course, whether or not that preference changed once they had uh, completed the study. We did find that the patients who had used the CPM felt that it was rather convenient to be able to use a machine rather than having to go out to see a physical therapist uh, and travel. So that was a convenience factor. Um, many of them initially were not too keen to stay in hospital to use a machine, um, but once having used the machine, virtually everybody said that they would choose to do that over again. Uh, so acceptance was very high and we found that compliance uh, was very high as well. Uh, in terms of the cost, we have measured costs, uh, and there are a number of different ways that that can be calculated. We don't actually have the analysis yet for cost. Uh, we're looking at that because that's a very important factor. It might seem initially that cost would be higher with CPM because there's a hospital stay, and certainly the actual dollar cost in the first three days would be higher. But whether or not the cost really truly is higher in terms of lost time from work, uh, workers' compensation, uh, reimbursement, things like that, uh, we, we don't know at this point. Um, but, but certainly once we have that analysis, we will share all of that. One of the um, things we didn't get into as much as the exclusion criteria, are there some patients you don't use CPM on and um, who would you advise against using this intervention on? Yes, well, we, we did have very carefully described uh, exclusion criteria. There were 13 of them, and, and without you know, going into all of the details, they, they, they roughly were grouped into a number of categories. For example, if a patient was thought uh, to be almost certainly not capable of regaining a reasonably full range of motion, uh, for example, a patient with a severe intraarticular malunion that was not being corrected, or a patient with marked dysplasia of the elbow, that um, would not be able to permit full range of motion, then the patient uh, was excluded from the study. Also patients with progressive conditions uh, were excluded from the study. Um, so having said that, um, your, your question really is, are there patients in whom I would recommend not using CPM? Well, I think the most significant um, uh, recommendation in this regard is that as a result of the findings of this study, um, I and my partners have decided that um, whereas we routinely use CPM up until this study was completed, um, we now are recommending it only for patients with moderate and severe contractures. And for those who have more moderate, uh, more mild contractures, um, we're not proposing to use CPM. It's not our first recommendation although we would offer it if the patient um, either feels that recovery at the quickest rate possible is a high priority. An example there would be a professional athlete in mid-season. I would definitely recommend CPM for that because recovery is much quicker. Or if the patient feels that even a small gain uh, compared to what they might get um, in physical therapy, uh, I should say even a small increase in gain compared to what they might get in physical therapy would be worth it to them. And that's a patient value type decision. So we explain that and let them decide about whether to use CPM or physical therapy um, if they have a fairly mild contracture. And as I say, that represents a change. There are a few patients who, for whom I think physical therapy, I'm sorry, for whom I think CPM is not appropriate. Uh, a patient who cannot comply well perhaps due to some um, a disability, uh, should not really, uh, I think, be recommended to use CPM. A patient with a massive arm, 
uh, or a patient with a massive body uh, is not a good candidate for CPM, and nor is a patient with a tiny body or a tiny arm. So some of the pediatric patients have arms that are just too short and too small to be able to work with the CPM machine. And these are some of the contraindications. And then perhaps finally, if there's potential for instability of the elbow or a fracture that has been fixed uh, to become unstable, then we would recommend not using CPM because of the potential to have uh, the elbow malaligned in the machine and therefore stressed in a way that might harm those tissues. Dr. Jessica, one of the really interesting choices here was the decision to make achieving the participant's number one goal one of your outcome measures. That I think that's, first off, super admirable and super interesting, but very unique. Tell us a little bit about that decision. Is that something you use in your practice? How do you apply that in your practice? And how did you make the decision to include that in the study? Yes, that's a, that's a very insightful question to ask, Peter. Um, going into the preparation for this study, um, first of all, it, it was a very, very long process in designing the outcome parameters that we would look at. And the reason it took quite some time is that over the course of 30 years of using CPM, I and people who have been with me have an unmistakable impression as to there being a benefit of this. And it, it's unmistakable for sure. And, and having said that, um, when we were doing that, when we were designing the study, we realized that it was not exactly clear just why this benefit seemed to be so unmistakable and how we would measure that. It wasn't as simple as um, the motion is clearly a lot better. It wasn't really that. It was how quickly the patients seemed to recover. Um, a patient would undergo surgery, sometimes a big surgery, and this includes open surgeries as well. And three days post-op would pack up their things and walk out of the hospital carrying the CPM machine in the operated arm. And, and that's not typical for surgery, you know, to be using the arm like that three days later. So as we went through and tried to come up with parameters that didn't yet exist, we realized that some of those would have to be captured in words that a patient could express clearly and write down on paper but that could be understood and transmitted and communicated to other surgeons and, and ultimately in subsequent research studies. And so this, this, these milestones of how long did it take, how long were they set back and how long did it take to get over the surgery, so to speak? Patients often ask us that. How long will it take me to get recover from the surgery? It depends what you mean by recover from the surgery, doesn't it? So um, a number of these parameters were things like getting to their number one, number one goal. And for many of them, that was getting back to work. And there are patients for whom getting back to work on day four or day seven was critically important. Or athletes, we have uh, two professional high level, at the very highest level that exists, including um, you know, achieving the highest level within that sport. Um, athletes uh, who are not part of this particular study but who had to get back because it was mid-season and it was right coming up on finals, um, you know, world championships. And, and these patients went through and used the CPM and got back in record time. And, and the, this type of rapid recovery is something that is very difficult to measure. And so we came up with these parameters that had to do with milestones in the patient's recovery process. And those were the parameters that were very notably uh, achieved more quickly with CPM than with physical therapy. Well, Dr. Driscoll, I really appreciate your sharing your insights here. I, I, I can appreciate that a, a study like this two years, it sounds like years in the making and two years in, in, in the process of collecting the data and randomizing the patients is a huge undertaking. So I certainly congratulate you and your group for um, a great accomplishment. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us about the study? Anything else you think the listeners would find interesting? Yeah, thank you very much up here. Yeah, it was a big effort. You know, I am deeply appreciative to many, many people. Um, many people who long before we actually executed the study gave me input on what, what they thought a valid study would look like. Because the worst I thought we could do would be to do a study and then for people to think that it's really not that useful to them because it's not really a valid study or it doesn't apply to their practices. So people 
um, like Mark Cohen, um, David Stanley, uh, so many different people who um, gave me input or gave us input about the design of the study, including one of them was that I should not um, coach the CPM patients. One of my colleagues, um, David Stanley, believed that um, if I was to coach the CPM patients, who knows if the benefit that might be observed was due to the coaching or the CPM. And so that was a very difficult decision for me to decide that uh, he was right. And I had to decide, am I going to measure the whole package deal, including my coaching, or am I going to measure the effect of CPM? And I realized that, well, if, if others are going to use it, it's going to have to be without my coaching. It either is beneficial or not. And so there were these types of things that were um, very important in the making. And then finally, the team that we have here is just phenomenal. You know, we had 100% follow-up. And surgeons often will say how it's difficult to do a randomized trial because you can't get the patients to agree to be randomized. I've been using CPM as the treatment of choice for 30 years. And it was very difficult for me to decide that I should randomize the patients because there really isn't proof that this is better. It either is or isn't. And um, if it is better, I better randomize the patients and find out. And if it's not, better, then I better randomize the patients and find out and stop doing it <laughs> because it's a lot of effort and it's costly. Um, so having said that, um, we had a tremendous team and uh, we got um, uh, two thirds of the patients who were candidates for the study agreed to be randomized. And uh, we got, as I say, 100% follow-up, including our final patient in the, in the COVID. He waited until the COVID restrictions were up and came in for his one-year follow-up. And um, so I'm really pleased with that. But, you know, my partners, doctors, Maury and Sanchez, they they were so um, all in with this study that they also realized that the difference, for example, in surgical technique possibly could be a factor. And in a big study, that's not important. But in a small, you know, relatively small number, it might make a big difference. So they agreed, for example, that, you know, I would do all the surgeries. And that was a really big deal for them to ask their patients to have a different surgeon do their surgery than they thought was going to do them. And those patients agreed, except for just a very few. So I'm very thankful that we, we did the study. Um, I've changed my practice uh, based on the study. I was prepared if the study showed no benefit to stop using CPM and tell people that I'd stopped. Uh, but in reality, there, there was a benefit. But uh, not with the mild contractures to any great degree. And so I've stopped using it for mild contractures. So, but thank you for the opportunity to share some thoughts about it. I hope it's uh, useful for those who've wondered for a long time about CPM. Well, thank you so much again for coming on and presenting your practice changing research and uh, congratulations again. And uh, we'll look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you very much, Peter. Bye-bye. Well, that's about all the time we have for on this podcast. Thanks so much to our guest. For all of our Shoulder Noble listeners out there, don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next time.